have you ever been asked a question and the answer isn't simple, it's, it's involved, it's complex, right? And maybe uh, you get asked what you do, and what you do is involved and complex. There's your family life, there's your, your, your raising children, you're working, there's uh, your volunteering. Somebody says, so what do you do? And you're like, well, how do I just, it's not really a one-word answer. Or uh, maybe you've got a job that's difficult to describe, or you're in a program in a university, it's difficult to, to describe. Somebody says, hey, what are you going to school for? And then you... You say, oh, I'm in this program, and they say, oh, so what is that? And you're like, oh, boy, do you have 10 minutes? I mean, you know, there's, there's questions that are like that, right? It's not simple. Maybe you have a job, and you're like the guy from uh, This Is Us, and you trade weather commodities, and somebody's like, so how, what is that exactly? And, and it's a 25-minute answer, you know. I get asked, one of the questions I get asked all the time that it doesn't have a simple answer is, hey, how's the church going? You know, when you plant a church, people say, how's the church? How's the church? And uh, that's an involved answer because the church is you, and so they're really asking me how, you know, 100 people are doing. You know, hey, how's the, how's the church doing? And so there's good things and beautiful things and sad things and sorrowful things and uh, things to really be excited about. And then there's things to be really sad about. It's lives. It's involved. It's complex. But we're North Americans, so usually when people say, how's the church doing? They just want me to say 102. You know, that's like that's their, or whatever. They, you know, and say, how's your family? Five. You know, that's usually kind of how North Americans ask how church is doing. But anyways, it's involved. Today's text is from Exodus chapter 3. And this is the very familiar passage where Moses asks God what his, God, Moses asks God what his name is. He says, who should I say sent me? It's a very familiar passage. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at who the great I am is. Because God famously says I am. And because this text is the first time God kind of talks about his name. But then in the Gospel of John, Jesus seven times uses this exact phrase, I am. And so that's what we're going to look at over, over the next little while because there's a big difference between God of our own construct and God as he talks about himself. And so I hope that as we uh, dive into the scriptures in this way, that your hearts just come alive with the goodness of God's love and grace for you. Exodus chapter 3, the first 15 verses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. And then God said, do not come near, take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and to a good and a broad land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. 
And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. This is God's word. Now my prayer for you is that as we unpack this text, there is a, you get a great sense of assurance, the bigness of God and the closeness of God for you. It's today's sermon in a sentence. God delivered you by the grace of Christ. God is with you by the Spirit of Christ. He is the great I am. Now, this thing unpacks in verse 2 where there's this fire. God appears in this fire. And fire all throughout the Old Testament, it accompanies God's self-revelation. And it symbolizes His holiness. And it symbolizes His purity. This is this picture of fire. In verse 5, God's holiness and God's purity shows up, and right away, we're reminded that there's a barrier barrier between the purity of God and the impurity of humanity. It's the first thing. Notice that as soon as God reveals himself as in fire, holiness and purity, the very next thing is, Moses, you're not pure, you're not holy, take your shoes off. Right away, it's the first thing. It, con- it's, it confronts us. The text confronted Moses. The text confronts us. The gospel, the good news of the gospel, as we unpack it later, it liberates us. But before, there, before it liberates us, it actually confronts us. And here we see this confrontation. He says, Moses, you're standing on, in holy ground. In other words, I'm holy. You're not holy. I'm pure. You're impure. Right away, he's got to deal with this thing. And so... What amazed Moses in the first place, of course, is that this bush is burning, but it's not consumed. That's why he stops. That's why he looks. Hey, why is this thing not being consumed? The, the, the bush is not being consumed by the fire of God's holiness, and that actually anticipates the gospel. Something being consumed by God's fire, but, but not being burned up in it, begins to anticipate the good news of the gospel which is that we will not be consumed by the fire of God's holiness because God came to deliver us in Christ, who is our holiness. You see, God's holiness consumes things that are impure. It consumes things that are sinful. It consumes things that are dark. And all of us, regardless of your worldview, whether you're a Christian this morning, whether you're searching... Uh, you're not sure, person of faith, person of non-faith, nobody would say, my heart is perfectly pure. Nobody would say, there is no darkness in my heart. Nobody would say that. If there was a line that said, 
perfect people stand here. Nobody would stand in it unless they were delusional and they were, you know, like super holy. Then nobody would, nobody would do that. Now, God's holiness normally consumes, but yet it's not consuming. And the picture of the gospel is that God's going to make a way for his holiness not to consume sinners. And the good news of the gospel is that all of us who still have black, black unevangelized parts of our hearts are not consumed by God's holiness. So, it's a picture of things to come. It's a picture of his holiness. And I want you to also notice that the way God comes, it's very confronting. Take your shoes off. You're, there's a barrier here. I'm holy, you're not. But I've got a plan of redemption whereby my holiness won't consume you. It'll, it'll actually, my grace is going to actually cover you. Christ is going to make you holy. But then the way in which God comes is the way he even calls Moses. He says his name twice. Did you notice that? Moses, Moses. Now, if your name gets said twice in English, somebody's usually yelling at you. Right? Moses, Moses! Hey, hey! But in, in Hebrew, when you repeat somebody's name, quite often it's, it's a term of endearment. So I very intentionally, when I read the text, I didn't go, Moses, Moses! That's not the way God came. Like, that's how you have Moses have a coronary in the wilderness, and then the story's over, and we go to Exodus 4. That's not how God showed up. Moses. Moses. Come here. Okay, well, take your shoes off. Where you're standing is holy. Like, I am coming, and I could, like, evaporate everybody that's not holy, but I'm coming to actually make it possible so that my holiness doesn't burn everything up. This is the trajectory of the whole Bible here. This is the overarching meta-narrative of God's grace here on display in the way that he comes to Moses. And we don't want to erase his holiness and be like, God's not holy, and God kind of thinks we're all okay. No, he, does, he says, take your shoes off. We don't want to take our shoes off. We want to be like, no, I'm okay, God's okay, everything's okay. God's just kind of like out there floating around the stratosphere, and he kind of just loves everybody. And, you know, if you're sin or you're not sin, what, you know, just try your best, and God should accept it. None of this is in the text, right? Do you see, but do you see both things? There's like, a, there's like a cosmic barrier. There's like a cosmic justice. Take your shoes off. I'm pure, you're impure. And my purity could burn up your impurity, but yet I'm going to make a way now. And I'm coming to you in an endearing way to deliver. That's his big announcement that comes later. So this is key. So in verse six, understandably, Moses is afraid to look at God. We can relate. It says in verse six, he's afraid to look at God. We can, I think we can all relate to this. We're all, being afraid to look at God is an apt description of all of humanity, where we're, we're all afraid to look at God, because if, if there is a God, then that has vast implications on truth and life and eternity. Because if there is a God, then that means that what he says about what's good and true, and what he says about life, and what he says about eternity, supersedes my ideas about all those things. So that's intimate. It's hard to look at that. That's why, cosmically speaking, you have things like the anthropic principle, for example, where the anthropic principle is a way of saying life is on a razor's edge. You know, scientifically speaking, you know, the angle of the Earth, our distance from the sun, the gravitational forces, the forces that hold the universe together, the reason that the speed at which the Earth spins so that we're all okay here and we don't just fly off like, you know, those merry-go-rounds where you were little kids, you know, they don't have those anymore because they'll kill people, but, you know, back when we were kids, you could spin the merry-go-rounds and the little kid would be holding on, ah, he'd let go and he'd 
go into the bushes. You know, there's a reason why we all don't just fly off the earth. There's all of the, it's called the anthropic, people refer to it as the anthropic principle, this stratospheric, mind-boggling amount of precision in the universe. But you see, if you're afraid to look at God, you look at all these things. Things like if, and say, well, it, it was probably blind, purposeless chance. Because I'm afraid to look at the implication that there could be an intelligent designer behind it. Well, there's really, or you go the other way and you, and you go micro and you look under a microscope and, and you get into the subatomic levels and you look at the DNA and you look at the, the radical precision required for human life to even exist. But if, like Moses, we're afraid to look at God, and I'm just speaking, broadly speaking, we're kind of afraid to look at God, then we'll look at those things and say, now that it's probably just chance. There probably is really no reason why all of this is working. All these trillions and trillions of things would have to coincide for life to exist. Probably not a God. There's probably another explanation. We're afraid to look at him. For the same reason Moses was afraid to look at him. There's implications. And the implications are, he's perfectly holy and I'm not. And the way that he speaks about life as truth and my ideas about it, I might have to bend my knee, but I'm not sure that I want to. So we can relate to Moses. And as Christians, we can relate to Moses because even if you're a Christian, you still have these burning bush moments in your life often where you realize, oh boy, God's, God's holy and I'm not. How many of us, probably all of us, have avoided church, stayed away from church, left church because we realized uh, that, you know, our spiritual life is off track so we're going to stay away from God. We don't want to look at God. Our marriage is off track. We're going to stay away from God. We don't want to look at God. Our kids are off track. That's embarrassing to us. We're going to stay away from God. We're going to look at God. Our ethics are off track. We're going to stay away from God. We're not going to go to church. So Moses being, God revealing himself in his purity, and then Moses being like, I'm not sure I want to look at that. We get it, I think, in our souls. Because we all have that, that thing. But there's good news that's coming here. Really good news. Because in those moments when we're all kind of like, ah, I'll keep my shoes on, thanks. God says, take your shoes off. In other words, humble yourself. We're like, well, I don't want to humble myself. I'm going to keep my shoes on and say that this whole universe created itself. I'll keep my shoes on. Or whatever it is that we kind of choose to do. There is good news here. And here's the good news. It's that Moses did not deserve any of this to occur. Moses is doing his thing. When God comes in his great grace and interrupts Moses' life with this gracious interruption, in the same way that he had gracious interruption in all of your life, in my life, and he continues to have these gracious interruptions to draw us to himself. Moses didn't deserve to be in God's presence. He was invited by sheer grace. You and I don't come to church this morning because our stellar Christian behavior this last week earned us a spot to come here and, and feel like, yeah, I can come to church with no guilt because after all, I had a really great week, I'm living a really great life, and I, I deserve to stand in the presence of God. No, we're all here by God's great grace because in spite of us, he's constantly inviting us to come. He's graciously moving towards us. This is the picture that keeps showing up in Scripture over and over and over. It's because of Jesus Christ and his justifying grace that all of us can stand before God. God said to Moses, take your shoes off. The place you're standing is holy ground. You can't stand before me unless I permit you to do it. You and I get to stand before God every day, every Sunday, because of Christ. Because Christ is our holiness. It's a beautiful picture of God's goodness. 
And so when we feel least qualified to come into worship is actually when we're most qualified. And so God announces why he came in verse 8. And his announcement was, I came to deliver. This is why I've come. I hear the cries. I hear the suffering. And I've come to deliver. Now, just zoom out for a minute. Let's just zoom out of this. Because we're talking about Moses by the burning bush. But let's zoom out. Let me explain the story again. And you think about whether this sounds familiar to you or not. There's a guy watching sheep. And while he's watching sheep, an angel of the Lord comes. And then there's this startling visual situation. And then there's this radical announcement that comes of God's intended deliverance. Does that remind you of anything? You know, we just can't, this is like the Christmas narrative. I mean, not the Christmas narrative. The, the delivering grace of Christ narrative again. Do you see how throughout the scriptures, God just keeps continually, continually desiring to reveal himself and reveal his grace. Why? Because when you're an infinite God, how do you reveal yourself to finite minds? Slowly (laughs) and in little bite-sized chunks for a few thousand years. And we can eventually kind of wrap our minds around this. Do Do you see this? The goodness of what God is up to here? He's like, I'm coming in grace. What you deserve is for everything to just get burnt up and start over again, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to come. Moses, Moses, and he comes. I'm going to deliver. While Moses was watching his sheep, the angel of the Lord comes and makes an announcement of deliverance. Luke chapter 2, we see the same pattern revisited, right? In the nativity, in the birth narrative. And so, this is the story arc of the Bible. And so then when you get to verses 10 and 11, after God makes this announcement, he calls Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh. And then you've got this great contrast between the inadequacy of Moses and the adequacy of God. You know, the, the, the Moses' inability and God's all-sufficiency. And you got these things together. And again, we can relate to this. We can totally relate to Moses in this moment. Because Moses is called to speak to Pharaoh. This great announcement of grace comes I'm going to deliver my people. Now go and announce my plan of deliverance. And Moses' response to this is, uh, who am I? You and I have been given this great announcement of grace and deliverance that we go to take to this city. And our response is exactly like Moses' response. Uh, Who am I? Moses is like, I stutter. Um, I'm not sure there's probably somebody better for this. And that's precisely the way that we kind of respond and feel about our call to share the good news. Quite often, right? We can relate. We can relate to this. We, under, we, we, can, we can see ourselves in the text. Well, I have really good news for you. Because in both the case of Moses having to deliver that good news, well, it wasn't good news for Pharaoh, but it was very good news for the children of Israel, and us and our call to deliver good news, in both situations, the one doing the heavy lifting is God. The one doing the deliverance is God. Not Moses and not us. In either scenario of sharing the, sharing the words of God. In both situations, God is the one doing all the heavy lifting. God is the one doing the saving. God is the one doing the deliverance. He never said, Moses, you do the delivering. He said, said, I've come to deliver my people. I need you to go and deliver a message, please. I'm going to do it. I'm inviting you into this. I'm inviting you into this. It's like a parent. Think of it this way. The way that God called Moses, the way God calls us to share the good news. It's like a parent who decides they're going to build a treehouse for their kid in the backyard. 
So they go and they get all the materials and they pay for it all. They pay the entire cost and they do all of the work of getting everything needed for the gift. And it's in the backyard and then they, the parent goes into the house and gets the kids and says, hey, I want you to come out and help me build this treehouse. And the kids are like, yay, we got a treehouse. The kids run out and the kids are like holding a piece of wood. You know, maybe they're holding like a single nail. I mean, they're kind of, quote unquote, they're participating. But in this situation, in this analogy, and of course all analogies break down, but in this analogy, the gift is for the child. The gift could never be attained by the child. The gift could never be completed by the child. The parent could do the entire thing without the child. But the parent intentionally invites the child into an exciting adventure of participation. Building the treehouse is just an exciting adventure in participation. I could do this without you, but I am intentionally choosing to not do this without you because I want you to, I want you to be a part of this. And so, as is with Moses and as is with the church today in our call, who is doing the heavy lifting? God. Whose church is this? God's. It's Christ. Who, it is, the saving work has always been God's grace in Christ, and it continues to be. Salvation came by the power of God through the willing but stammering lips of Moses. And salvation comes in this city by God through the willing and stammering lips of the church. Mine and yours. And in verse 14, God reveals himself, the great I am. This, this phrase, this I am, who is this God? This, the great I am that we're going to look at for the next seven weeks, he reveals himself. The, the names that were chosen and recorded throughout all of Scripture, they had significant meaning. Often, your character was, was uh, you know, announced through your name. Names were always specifically linked to memories and moments and prophecies and, and uh, hopes. And so names in the Bible were super important. They carried a lot of weight. So when Moses asked the question, hey, who should I say sent me? It's a very important question. Especially to that first audience that would have been reading this. Be, yeah, the name. This is going to be a big announcement. This is going to be a big deal. But then when God answers the question, he doesn't answer with a simple word. He actually answers with a series of actions. In English, your name is a noun. My name is Paul, and Paul is a noun. But what God does here is, when he says, what's your name? His name is a verb. It's a series of verbs. When we read it in English, he says, tell him I am sent you. And for us, it just seems like bad grammar, right? We're like, we don't really understand that. Who sent, I am sent you. We, for us, it just seems like bad grammar. It's weird. I'm going to give this to you in the Hebrew. And we're going to unpack it for just a minute. Because I hope that this goes deep into your heart to see the goodness of what God actually said here. So God says, I am who I am. In the Hebrew, God, God, it's all verbs. And he says uh, in the Hebrew, ayach asar ayach. And this Hebrew word, ayach, is means to come to pass or to bring things into being or to be. It's used a bunch of different ways. If you see this word, ech, I am who I am. Ech, asa ech. It's just this big, long series of things that God does. That's how he answers the question. Why would he do that? Is he trying to be confusing? He's saying, okay, how, this is pretty meta. He says, I'm the one who has always been. And I'm the one who's being now. And I'm the one that brings everything into being. This is how he answers Moses. 
I'm the one who was, I'm the one who is, I'm the one who is to come. I'm the one who fulfilled all things, I'm the one who sees all, you know, it's this crazy answer. And so basically he says, I'm the one who's always been, I'm the one who's being now, I'm the one who's always going to be, I'm the one who delivered everybody throughout all of history, so I need you to go tell Pharaoh, that guy, him, he's coming to town. And he's going to deliver these people who could never deliver themselves. You see, it's a picture of us. We're the ones that could never deliver ourselves. All of God's children throughout of all of history could not deliver themselves. It's by his grace, through Christ, that he's delivered all of us. So God's answer is not just like, tell him Jehovah is coming. Like, he doesn't just give this name. Like, tell him Paul is on his way. That's why his answer is this long series of verbs. It's incredible. But what's the significance of this? Why does he, why does he say this? He says, I hear their cries. He says, why? Because his answer isn't, isn't pedestrian, it's, it's powerful. You know, back in the 90s, Bette Midler wrote, wrote this song called From a Distance. And it was like, there was this refrain at the end, like, God is watching us from a distance. You know, from a distance, da, 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 this whole thing. And so a lot of people are like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how God is. He's from a distance. But what this text gives us, when God says, eh, eh, oh, who's coming? Who's coming? I'll tell you who's coming. God is saying, the transcendent God who has always been, who flung the universe into existence, is also as close as your next breath, who hears your cries and hears your sufferings and the pain of your life and what you're going through this week, the worry, the anxiety, the fear, the tears. Like, he gets all of it, he sees all of it, he hears all of it. He's not just transcendent, he's eminent, he's right there, he's as close as your next breath. He's coming to deliver you. That's what's being encapsulated in this phrase. This is who's with you, church, with whatever you're dealing with on Monday. This is, the, this is the great I am who is with you. The one who has always been. The one who will always be. The one who transcends all things. So close to you in this next moment, the great I am. With you on Monday morning. With you when you're staring in the mirror, frustrated and hurt, and your heart is breaking, dealing with whatever it is that you're dealing with. He's with you. He's the one who's come to deliver your heart from your pain and from your hurt. And so God's not merely from a distance, transcendent. He's in the day-to-day caring about the, the hurts and the pains of our life. And he's also not just imminent. He's not just like, well, God's inside me and kind of like he's in the rock and he's in me and he's in the tree and he's just kind of a part of everything and he's endorsing my life. He's not that God either. He's the God that says, take your shoes off. Right? It's not you're okay, I'm okay. It's I'm the one who's all I'm the one that spun the universe into motion. Right? You're made of dirt. You're gonna to return to the dirt. I was there before, I was there after. Big. And now and though yet I care and love so deeply, I'm I'm coming to deliver you because I love you and care for you and I want you. And I, God does not need anything from you. He loves you. He wants you. This is the message of the gospel, and this is the message of Exodus 3, of why God came. And that's why in verses 11 and 12, when Moses puts up the fight, who am I? God says, but I will be with you. This is the whole point. He's reminding him, I will be with you. I'm doing everything. I'm carrying, I'm carrying all the, I'm doing all the heavy lifting. Right? That's the whole goal of the gospel, is that God does all the heavy lifting. 
of saving our souls, of liberating our souls, so that once we place our faith in Christ, the Christian life is like building the treehouse. It's an adventure, an act of participation in something that God is really ultimately doing and done. And now we are now joyously having our hearts recalibrated and renewed and our minds recalibrated and renewed because he's, he's the one that graciously interrupted. He's the one, he's why you're sitting here this morning. Him and his great grace and his great providence is why you're here hearing this good news, that he loves and cares for you this deeply in Jesus Christ. And this is how uh, he reveals himself to Moses in this way. You know, Jesus said this, I am. Seven times through John. And before he ascended in Matthew 28, what is the last thing he says to the disciples, which by extension he says to us? He says, I will not leave you orphans. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you. The goal of the gospel is God with us. The celebration at Christmas is God with us. The burning bush and God showing up to Moses is, is reemphasizing the God with us. I mean, this is what he's always wanted from the garden, this is what he's restoring in Revelation. God with us. The good news of, of the gospel, of who he is. And so God has delivered you by the grace of Christ, and God is with you by the Spirit of Christ. He is the great I am. And Jesus also said this in John 8. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Again, it's not just bad English. What, that's a, Jesus used the same phrase God said he, when they're like questioning him. He says, before Abraham was, he says the same thing that God said in, in, in Exodus 3. Why would Jesus do that? Well, when, when he would do that because he's either the Lord of the universe or he's a lunatic. Those are the options, right? We can't put him in the third category of, well, Jesus is just a nice guy. He's kind of a hippie that went through the desert and he just hung out with all the outcasts and he loved the down and outers and he's just a nice teacher. No, he wasn't. Nice teachers don't say, <laughs> nice teachers don't say, they don't say, I'm the one who was before all things and brought everything into being and I'm being now and I'll always be. Either you're the Lord of the universe and you're saying that or you're a lunatic. Jesus said that because Jesus is saying, I'm God. If you've seen me, you've seen the great I am. If you see the way that I love and lay my life down and sacrifice and, and go to those that, that, that don't deserve grace and give them grace, and if you watch all that I'm saying and doing, you're seeing the God of the burning bush. You're seeing it. And when you're seeing me, turn to the Pharisees and say, you guys are making a mockery of, of God, your whitewashed sepulchers. And when you see Jesus saying these things, and confronting sin, which he does, go and sin no more. He's saying, he's also the God of the, book, of the burning bush, saying, okay, take your shoes off. In my great grace, I've come to you to deliver you, to save you. There is great rest in this world that is unrest, at unrest by resting in the goodness of this great I am and meditating on the reality that our life is in the capable hands of the one who has always existed of the one who brings all things to pass, of the one who has come, the one who is to come, the one who has rescued you, who is renewing you, who is reviving you, who is with you, so that whatever it is that you've got to deal with tomorrow morning, whether it's outside you or inside you, the great I am, he is with you. 
in his great grace, continually delivering you, continually rescuing you, continually renewing you, continually doing his beautiful work in you. He is ministering his grace so that you and I stop trusting inward, curving inward, trusting in ourselves, and that we would curve upward and trust in his greatness, the magnificence of the great I am, that in his greatness we would find tremendous liberation and rest in our smallness. Let's pray.